Welcome to The Paradigm Concept, hosted by myself, Dr. David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. The Paradigm Concept will feature leaders and innovators in the healthcare industry, in particular dentistry, to help you find new, efficient, and innovative ways to build a world-class practice and deliver better patient care. At Paradigm Oral Health, we're all about shaping the future of our specialty, with a focus on putting the needs of the patient first. Learn more and subscribe today at ParadigmOralHealth.com. Hi, this is David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. I'm joined today by James Card, who's Vice President of Business Intelligence here at Paradigm. James is trained as a data scientist and was really one of the first people to join our team when we started Paradigm over four years ago. James and I have had an amazing time sort of imagining and then building what has become our data ecosystem. And I often think of James kind of like the guy on the Dos Equis commercial as the most interesting man in the world. So (laughs) it should be a, a nice talk. So James, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, I appreciate it, David. It's been a fantastic four years, and the opportunity that I've had with you has been a very rare one. Usually we come in as data scientists, and it's to fix a problem and a reactionary measure, not to start with a blank canvas and paint our future. So it's awesome. Yeah, it's felt like an ideal scenario for me, too. So I've used these podcasts or discussions to talk with other people and learn from them what's made them successful and then think about how we can translate that more directly into clinical practice or just the business of paradigm or other people who might be listening to their practices. So I think this will be a really interesting, obviously a super hot topic in regards to data, especially relating to healthcare. But, you know, I don't want you to give away all of the secret sauce, but I'd like to ask you about, you know, your background. What is a data scientist? I'd like to get your thoughts on, you know, how data can improve healthcare outcomes and experiences. And then lastly, just kind of what you see for the future. So if that sounds like a reasonable plan, I got a couple of questions for you. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's go. Okay. Well, just to kind of give everyone context of how you think about things, maybe tell us a little bit about your background, how you you know, became a data scientist and what does that mean in the rapidly evolving field of data? Sure. So getting into this career, which is a fairly new one, going from college to where I'm at now, they say that the quickest way to get between two points is a straight line. Mine looked more like a childhood scribble. So, you know, I started my career at Stryker in their endoscopy and technology division where I started working with surgeons in operating rooms. And it was a lot of fun felt like I could do more, had an opportunity to jump in operations. I thought that was very awesome as well. However, when I was there, I was inspired to go back to school and I was looking at either an MBA or an MHA and I just could not stay focused at all. I became absolutely obsessed with artificial intelligence, TED Talks, science and technology. And so I got it in my head that as somebody who didn't even have prerequisite courses for a master's in computer science, that's what I was going to do. So I spent another couple of years getting another bachelor's degree in software engineering. I didn't quite finish it. And I was at a conference and somebody told me about a program at Northwestern that was called the Master's in Predictive Analytics. I read the description. I understood about 20% of the words on the page and just was like, this is for me. This is what I'm doing. So I got into the program at Northwestern, which was just really blew me away. They had less than a 2% acceptance rate. It was one of the hottest programs in the country and exciting. And also one of the most challenging, difficult things that I've ever done. So after my program, I got an email about two years later from Northwestern and they said, hey, we taught you guys so much. 
we can actually give you another degree in data science and we're going to change the name. So just to give you an idea how new the field of data science was, I graduated in 2017, started with a degree that had a different name and now it's called something else. That's, I guess, being in the right place at the right time and stars aligning. That sounds awesome. So, you know, as we've built out our data team, I've kind of started to realize there's not like one, you know, true degree or, or true path in terms of, you know, having statisticians and and engineers and things. So, you know, what kind of makes up a data team or a business intelligence team? Great question, David. What's interesting about the industry is the cart is a bit before the horse, and I learned that very quickly. So in order to do good data science, you need great data. Garbage in, garbage out, right? So I was taught all the skills as a data scientist, and then I get into healthcare, which is probably 10, 15 years behind everybody else when it comes to database technologies, and realized, oh my God, I've got to learn data engineering before I could even do data science. So right now, there's a lot of programs. It's one of the fastest growing programs in the country is data science, yet not much data engineering is being taught. You learn some in data science and maybe like a management information systems degree and you get a supplement with extracurricular courses. But I would say the two core competencies is going to be data engineering and data science, and those are going to be your highest level technicians on the team. Stepping back from there, we've got business intelligence developers, we've got data analysts for quality control, and then, you know, sometimes we've got really nerdy data governance people who like to document things because us data engineers and data scientists hate that. We do it anyways, but we'd really like to offload it to somebody else. Yeah, I think it's, you know, from my perspective, and I'm pretty big picture and obviously not an engineer, but it seems like it's been, you know, kind of like the perfect incubator where when you first joined us, we thought we had like a focus position for you and, you know, more in terms of revenue cycle and how you dealt with data, but then realizing that, you know, the talent that you had and the opportunities that we could create to really understand our business and our patients was enormous. So sort of just kind of gave you carte blanche to just develop this team. And I don't think everybody even totally knows what your, your group all does, but I think you guys have been pretty well protected to sort of be imaginative and, and really build our data ecosystem. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, absolutely, David. So we really buck trends from your traditional data team with data analysts, right? Somebody, let's say uh, CFO, will come to a data analyst and say, hey, I would like you to analyze why maybe revenue has been down over the past couple of weeks, get back to me with a story, or go find something that is a problem in the business and get back to me, right? And then they do that. And that's kind of the extent of it, or maybe building reports is what we would humorously say, data monkey, right? Just here's some numbers on a screen and give it to you. So we flip that model upside down, just like Paradigm does, right? It's like taking the corporate hierarchy, flipping it upside down and being a service to our customers. And that's how we treated the data team and all the process leaders at Paradigm was, what can we do to make your job better? And that could be getting the data to provide basic KPIs so you can measure the health of your process, whether it's marketing, it is clinical excellence, patient satisfaction, finances, capacity, you name it, right? Or it could be, I'm, I got all this manual labor that I got to do. And you know it's taking me 10 hours a week to fill this paper out. And so we would 
utilize what's called robotics process automation to create digital robots that would automate their manual workflow to free them up for higher level tasks. Yeah, I think you've done a really good job of like providing solutions. So when it's like solving the problem or answering a question, it's like, okay, now how could we answer the same type of question every time? How can this Mm -hmm. be dynamic information rather than just asking a question and putting in the right flow of data in place and the right measure and and then the right display. So I think we've really collected a nice portfolio of dashboards and and metrics that a lot of them I think are pretty novel. And I guess that kind of brings us to a data ecosystem. You know, what is a data ecosystem? I love to think about businesses in terms of ecosystems and, and really being comprehensive and what you provide your customers. And, you know, for us, our customers, our patients, the ecosystem that we provide them is in partnership with dentists and dental laboratories. And a huge part of the ecosystem is the surgical practice and paradigm. But, you know, what we do at the clinical level is, you know, a healthcare system or a dental healthcare system, an ecosystem. And I think that's what we've created with our data team and even, you know, branded it that way, as we call it Paragon. I think it's totally a service in our customers our paradigm or the practices that that we work with. So maybe describe what a data ecosystem is and the services that you provide. Sure. So a data ecosystem, that's a fairly new phrase. Usually when you talk about data, a lot of people can relate to database, data warehouse, and that's the extent of it. And there really, there wasn't a term that was accurately catching everything that happens in the data world. So a data ecosystem is everything from all of our databases we connect to, whether it's ADP for human resource data, payroll data, our patient survey system, that's another database, right? And then all of our practice management systems are separate databases. So within those, there's data lakes, there's data warehouses. We have hundreds of programs that automate the data transformational processes. Those are also within the data ecosystem. Then we have the data visualization and reporting aspects, right? So, you know, we all of our reporting, you mentioned our dynamic reporting in Power BI, our reporting that are automated, whether it's via emails or even alerts upon our data, our machine learning platform that we've recently built out, our robotics process automation technologies. And then I would even say that the roles are somewhat fluid as well, given whatever the needs are at the time. You know, there's been a lot of talk about AI, you know, the past year and chat GPT and some of these generative models. How does that interface with what you do? And have you, have you been able to find any opportunities there? I mean, I think, you know, people will kind of throw around AI in almost a cliche way, yet not really be able to put their finger on how it, you know, it's supposed to be so incredibly transformative, but are you actually really using it? And I, I think you guys are. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. I would call early adopters. So we started adopting ChatGPT before it became mainstream in the media. And it replaced a workflow that is saving us hours a week. So that would be research and development from Stack Overflow. So as somebody who's developing code, when you run into a problem, which you do almost every time you're writing code, Stack Overflow is the gold standard to problem solve what you're doing. So you can read through blog posts, and understand your problem, possibly find some code to fix it. Well, ChatGPT, you can pose those same questions and instantly get better answers. You can also ask it to kickstart some code for you, and it's pretty incredible. I mean, the first time I used it, I asked it to write me a tic-tac-toe game in Python, and I was able to copy and paste it and run it without any errors. And it immediately worked, which... How how long would that have taken you? 
if you had to do it yourself? Hours. Really? Hours. Absolutely. Wow. So we're probably just scratching the surface, huh? We are. Absolutely. I can tell you another use case of somebody at Paradigm that when they get frustrated and want to send a frustrating email, they actually type out the email, then paste it into ChatGPT and say, okay, make it sound nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great idea. Another way to use it too would be people like myself that are not trained as an oral surgeon, but would like to become more knowledgeable with the procedures, but not with the medical lingo. So David, say a very complicated procedure in medical terms for me. Something in regards to oral surgery, like terms would be like, you know, bisagittal split ramus osteotomy. Okay, that's totally good enough. Like you already lost me. I have no clue what you said. But if I type that in a chat GPT and said, explain this to me like a child, I'm going to learn a lot. I'll start to conceptually understand what you said. Paul, Paul, do you have it in front of you? Yeah. Let's see what it says about bisagittal split ramus osteotomy. Split ramus. R-A-M-U-S. Osteotomy. Yeah. Okay, so it's explain your lower jaw is a bit like a car. You know, sometimes a car doesn't run straight and needs to go to a mechanic for an alignment. It's similar with your jaw. Sometimes a person's lower jaw doesn't align properly with the upper jaw, making it hard for them to chew or speak properly or might even make their face look a little different. Wow. Let's call it a jaw fixing operation. It's like a trip to a very special mechanic, a surgeon. The surgeon's job is to fix the alignment tissue. Is it? Is it? Yeah, is it on yeah, the right path? yeah, yeah. It's definitely on the right path. So no, that I love this real time. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> we had to have done this on the podcast, but that's amazing. You know, I'm gonna have to play with that some more. Well, cool. How about predictive algorithms? I know we've worked on a number of those, and we use them, you know, on a not infrequent basis. You know, maybe talk about some examples of work that you've done with prediction. Sure. So we built a handful of machine learning models, and they are mostly what I'd call either just a multivariate regression model or decision tree models. And we've applied those to predicting, let's say, profitability over the coming months or year over year change or something like that. And what factors contribute to that process? So it does a couple things for us. There's a reason why the windshield is bigger than the review mirror in your car, right? We want to see where we're heading, and that can give us some idea there. And then we also want to see how we can improve not only just finance, but our operations, right? Because our operations impact the end results of what we're trying to achieve. So it's a pretty incredible way once once you get your data right, which is why data engineering is so important, you know, we iterated 10 different types of models just for one problem. And then we would see which one scored the best. We've got various statistical ways to do that. And then we come back to somebody like yourself. We will review the model's results. And sometimes they're counterintuitive. Sometimes they're spot on. And then we go back and we can kind of tweak and fine tune them from there. We've been able to achieve, I would say, for recently implementing these, pretty high predictability of success so far. And we're, we're only going to continue in, to improve as we uh, grow in data. And then also, as we build out our machine learning platform in the cloud inside of Azure, which is going to allow for much more rapid development. 
Yeah, I think as we've used them to predict locations where, you know, we want to be or characteristics of practices that might perform well with us after merging with Paradigm, it's been pretty fascinating. And it's exciting. It's also kind of frustrating because, you know, from my not being a data scientist looking at the decision trees and things, and sometimes it's like, well, this doesn't make sense at all, but kind of what the data is showing, but can we really trust it based on the inputs that we have? And, and then, you know, you're telling me the probabilities of different things. And I'm definitely at a high level. It's like, okay, this is the question. You no, know, you guys do a bunch of stuff and yeah. show, me, show me what reality should be. But yeah, I, there's definitely some art to kind of deciphering it and saying, you know, kind of figuring out what you can depend on and, and what, you know, maybe, maybe we don't quite have enough information to make a huge, really significant determination. But I think, I feel like we've, We've gotten some pretty great models. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love that you said this is the art behind it, right? I mean, your intuition about oral surgery in the markets is hard to beat if we even could. Like, I'm always blown away about how close you are with predicting things. And so I really love that when we do come to something with you that you do challenge it and we take that feedback and then it becomes a creative process, right? Like when I was talking about multi-collinearity and how the variables are balancing themselves out. And then what we could do is get creative by combining those together to allow for additional variables to then enter the model to provide us more insights. And so it's a really fun back and forth we'll get to have. Yeah. The one we were looking at the other day was, I kind of got to the end of it and said, okay, like, I'm not arguing this isn't right, but the most we can say is that it's a model. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's telling us what it should with this data, but there's no way that can be true. And, and maybe it is. It's always fascinating when sometimes you are like totally counterintuitive and you're like, well, yeah, I guess I can. And, and I'm often like trying to like talk myself into why that's right or wrong. And, you know, maybe sometimes there's not a great explanation. It just is what it is. But I think you kind of have to be a little bit weary when you run into those situations is like, can I totally trust that that is true? You're and, spot on. A lot of companies make the mistake of treating machine learning and AI like a black box. They accept the model. They put it in deployment. Nobody really asks what it's doing. Mm -hmm. It still might predict okay to a certain degree, but the risk profile of implementing that model is much more higher than going through understanding it better and explaining it, which, you know, our team will never compromise that. We'll always make sure that the science and data leads the way and that there will never be any type of ego or some other type of reasoning to put something into play. We'll always follow best practice. I think we did a large study together on the anesthesia safety or anesthesia outcomes in the outpatient setting that was an expanded upon Steve Weimer's paper last year that was won the Laskin Award last year that he had published out of Mayo. In that paper, I think they had about 17,000 patients that they studied over about two decades, I think, or somewhere around 15 years. And we took that and created a new data set of, what, 64,000 patients, something like that. Yep. And, you know, reported phenomenal results, at least in terms of what we would hope for outcomes and that there were no serious adverse events and I think 0.4% adverse events, none being serious. So I think it'll be a really meaningful paper, really a landmark paper, because I think it took an already really sound paper and then took it to a whole another level, primarily because we had your whole team working. I mean, we had great surgeons and then your whole team doing a lot of sophisticated data work that in residency, you just don't have the resources to mm -hmm. throw at these projects. Maybe you have a statistician for a few hours, but we had you know data engineers, statisticians, all this stuff. And the, the crazy thing is, I think everything that you guys did, synthesizing data, 
doing machine learning algorithms to figure out if there were characteristics to patients that led to the adverse events. Um, like it was kind of worthless. It didn't really tell us anything because it yielded results, but it was like, well, clinically that doesn't really mean anything or yes, of course that should have been the result. But I think the rigor behind it was awesome because we kind of established a way of looking at things and if nothing else, just sort of like proved that while there wasn't maybe really significant characteristics, maybe a couple of things, maybe nothing that's really going to change your practice. Maybe that was the value, too, in seeing that there maybe weren't a lot of characteristics that you come across on a day-to-day basis in your practice of relatively healthy patients. But that's a you know project that I was peripherally involved with, but super proud of, and the amazing work that you guys did on that. I don't know if you had any other comments on that project. As I've read through the paper and things, it's so challenging to even understand what was done in terms of you know data. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the more challenging projects that I've done in my career. And it's interesting you say it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, it came out to exactly what we expected. However, what we were doing is, like I said before, following the scientific method and appropriate analysis using the best techniques that we could possibly implement. And although we didn't find anything bombshell, oh my God, right? It's the rigor that really stands up here. It's going to be best in class when it's published. And I can't imagine anybody who's going to beat it for a long time. And it does set the foundation of how we do things at Paradigm. We approach every project with that kind of rigor. But what made it so difficult is that there are so few adverse events that you actually have to adjust your statistics to account for them because they're only outliers in the data, right? Like a nice, easy, simple machine learning project. We have nice balanced data. We can train the model. We can predict things. We can find some insights. That's great. Everybody gets it. Happy. Woohoo. This is more like trying to find the Higgs boson particle from the Hadron Collider than that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we had to change P values. We had to use like cross fold validation techniques, make sure that we weren't splitting the data in particular ways so that everything was sound as it possibly could be. I mean, just tight as a drum as we got through that. So thank you for your patience on that. I, you know, it was not an easy project, but very happy with the outcome. Well, I think that's going to be kind of more and more important part of, of data is, at least in our business, is, you know, how we can, we've established some nice uses from a business perspective and, and now focusing it clinically, leveraging that team to directly improve patient care and safety. That's what I'm proudest of. I know we have a couple other really exciting projects. I think one that I won't let the cat out of the bag yet, but I think we'll have upwards of a million patients, you know, in addition to our practices across 25 states, we'll have a number of marquee academic institutions involved and that should really be exciting. Any other examples where you think that we can be thinking about using your team to impact patient care directly? Yeah, absolutely. Another example that I can think of is, you know, all of our surgeons and team members take something called an HBDI, which is a thinking preference tool. And we've previously done some basic statistical correlative analysis on it and found some interesting things such as the trade of teaching and learning yields to have high patient satisfaction and and also more production where other variables, it was either a give or a take. And so now that we've grown significantly since then, we need to revisit that project and build some models around what makes an optimal team. And we can also expand it beyond just patient satisfaction 
and also beyond production, right? We can start layering in other things like team engagement, because if you've got a happy team, you've got a happy patient. Yeah. Right. So there's going to be a lot of fun stuff to do there as well. We're also looking at doing a customer value analysis. So we just recently deployed a referring provider survey to about just over 7,000 referring providers. We got about 10% response rate across Paradigm. And so that's another area where we'll be able to also start implementing advanced analysis, cluster analysis, machine learning techniques, and so on. Yeah, I love this stuff. Trying to figure out, like, you know, we like to think we're the best, but if we're not, we want to know it and we want to change to hopefully become the best. And it's so exciting to think about the future and what we can do with all this. I mean, you can really take yourself down a rabbit hole and probably get into projects that aren't really, or I easily tend to do that. I think we, we get excited <laughs> together, come up with these yeah. grand ideas. And then you kind of realize like, well, you know, that's like decades of work and maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe it doesn't result in anything super applicable. But nonetheless, I think we do a lot of good stuff too. Thanks for your time, first of all. But last big picture question here, where do you see things going in the next one year, five years and 10 years? The kinds of questions that we'll be able to answer and you know how we'll be able to provide value through teams like yours. Sure. So in the next one year, it's all going to be about optimization. We're going to be able to do more with less. So Microsoft just bought ChatGPT and they're integrating it already into Microsoft Azure and Power BI. So that's going to allow fewer people to do more, as well as to interact with the data in a much more natural way. So let's say instead of logging into Power BI and going to your report page and selecting your name, you can just say, hey, show me my production. and you know, maybe it just pops up on your phone or you can say, hey, Paragon, what do you think that my production is going to be three months from now or my net promoter score or show me the key variables that are driving my net promoter score up or down? And that's, I would say, a three to five year scenario. You know, can, they, we, they, can we get that faster? <laughs> <laughs> we will always try, David. I keep my eye on it. You know, I, I really do. They just bought them a few months ago. And so they're still integrated, but I've already started to take the training through Azure and ChatGPT. So we'll start to continue to see that. I think that that's going to ripple across the entire platform. I don't think it's just going to be isolated to surgeons or other process leaders looking at metrics and, and our work in the data world. I think it's going to have a significant impact on everybody's workflow. Five years from now is extremely hard to predict, given that a lot of these fields are super new. I would say that we're going to have computational power and access to more and more advanced AI and machine learning models. So what you see is data storage processing power continues to decrease in cost. And you know people keep coming up with new and improved and clever machine learning and AI algorithms. There's even a lot of what I would say UI implementation now. So somebody like myself who had to code everything, now there's user interfaces that people can use that'll highly improve their workflow. Because and now, then now, wanna... now computational power is you know, kind of expensive, right? To do some of the things that you want to do or, or is it changing rapidly? So that depends on how much data you have, but that is changing rapidly. So given that we're not a software as a service company where there's 10 million clicks every hour, like it's really a drop in the hat for us. And until we get a lot of data and we try to do something super complex, which we're not really there yet, 
we even have control of that. So we could even just spike computational power until the model runs and then shut it off. It's a very affordable space. So once we get our footing there, that'll be great. And then 10 years from now, I would say artificial general intelligence becomes sentient. And then we got to hope that we don't get the Terminator or the paperclip scenario that takes over the world. Yeah, let's hope not. <laughs> well, thank you, James. This is fascinating. And I, I always love talking with you. It, it gets me excited to think about new ideas and things that we can work on together. So I appreciate you taking the time as always. And let's do this again in the future. Thank you, David. Really appreciate it. Take care. Right. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to The Paradigm Concept, brought to you by Paradigm Oral Health an organization led and owned by surgeons passionate about shaping the future of our specialty and ensuring the needs of the patient come first. Learn more and subscribe to the show at ParadigmHealth.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on The Paradigm Concept.